KUT's AT Explained is back with a brand new season. Our first episode, what's up with that tower in Clarksville? I've heard it called the Clarksville Eiffel Tower, the tower, the leaning tower of Clarksville, all those names. Subscribe to AT Explained wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget our next AT Explained live show at the Paramount Theater on April 3rd. Brand new stories told live on stage. Get your tickets at austintheater.org. Support for AT Explained Live comes from Meals on Wheels Central Texas and World Interiors. A regular and now two specials. What will it take to get lawmakers again in special session to agree on a property tax cut plan? That and more today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. I'm David Brown. More on the tangle at the Capitol over property taxes and a closer look at why the two approaches at the center of a political battle appear to be incompatible. Sentencing set in a federal courtroom for the person accused in the 2019 Walmart shooting in El Paso. We'll hear the latest. Also, how some Texans are trying to beat the heat as the thermometer rises. And who knew what science is revealing about a common bird of prey and frequent defender of many a Texas garden. Those stories and a whole lot more when the Texas Standard gets underway. Right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this fifth day of July. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. 2023 would be the year that one of the nation's slowest professional sports games would get a kick in the pants from a new pitching clock. We've told you about that, right? Speeds things up. So far, many fans seem to like it. 2023 is also likely to go down as one of the slowest Texas legislative gatherings in history, if current trends keep up. For those keeping count, we are now into special session number two after a regular session. As Governor Greg Abbott insists on getting the House and Senate together to pass a bill lowering property taxes, this is something both houses appear to see eye to eye on when it comes to the broad objectives. But they're still very much in disagreement when it comes to the issue of how to get there. In a few minutes, we'll be taking a much closer look at the two approaches being taken by the House and Senate, how they differ, and how that difference matters as a practical matter for property taxpayers. But a larger political question at the moment is how or whether legislative leaders want to break this impasse in a special session one that few think will wrap up all that the governor really wants to get done this year. Joining us now, Sergio Martinez-Beltran, who covers the Capitol for the Texas Newsroom. Sergio, welcome back. Thanks for having me, David. Let's talk a little bit about what's been happening at the Capitol as it contrasts with a regular session. In a special session, the governor sharply limits what it is that he wants lawmakers to focus on. And once again, property taxes front and center, right? That's right. Those are the three words of this legislative session, property tax relief. And, you know, not a lot has happened on that end. The Texas House and the Texas Senate adjourned last week uh, for the long weekend and are actually coming back today. And, you know, the whole idea for them to come back to Austin is to sit down and come up with a deal on how to cut property taxes. The Senate last week passed their version of that proposal. It raises the homestead exemption to $100,000. It also redirects funds to buy down the school district's maintenance and operation taxes. That's called compression. 
The Senate last week also did something new that we haven't seen them do before, and it's that they added an amendment in one of those bills that would provide a $2,000 supplemental payment for teachers in urban areas and a $6,000 supplemental payment for those teaching in rural communities. Now, that would be like a one-time payment over the next biennium, but it's something that they had not included before. On the other hand, the Texas House seems to be looking at passing a similar measure they passed during the last legislative special session. So, you know, it looks like a lot of what happened during the first special session last month, you know, that ended up in in no deal between the chambers. Do you think the Senate was trying to sweeten the pot, maybe make it easier for more Democrats, perhaps on the House side, to say, hey, look what the Senate's done by including uh, these one-time bonuses uh, for educators? I mean, maybe this is something that will uh, uh, garner support. Does that seem to be working or no? I mean, certainly, it seems like he was trying to maybe, the Senate maybe was trying to sweeten some Democrats in the House, maybe put some pressure on some uh, Republicans and Democrats in the other chamber because it would be really bad, you know, bad optics for them to vote against uh, such such a race for teachers, which again, is a one-time payment. It's not even mm-hmm. uh, a sustainable, a sustained race. Um, I do think, though, that in the Senate last week, when they ended up passing this this raise and attached it to this bill, it really was a, a big moment of bipartisanship. The amendment that ended up raising, uh, giving these payments to teachers was introduced by Senator Roland Gutierrez, who is a Democrat that represents Uvalde. He's from San Antonio. He has, over the past few months, fought with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick over other issues like gun safety and gun control and with some of his other colleagues. But during this particular issue, he was the one who presented the amendment and it was unanimously approved by by the Senate. So I think it also sends a signal to the House that the Senate is together on this issue, that they agree on their proposal and now the ball is on the House's court. You know, uh, but you take a look at what happened when the two houses got back together last week. It seemed like there was all the talk of comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, but at the end of the day, uh, they couldn't see eye to eye over the approach. And in, you know, in some, we're going to be talking about this a little bit more in the broadcast, but the, the Texas Senate is going with an approach uh, that increases the the um, homeowner's exemption, while the House is taking a different approach. They're talking about a, a kind of compression, which basically loads the uh, savings up front. And as I understand it, uh, gives that savings to uh, educators. Is that correct? That's something that they are trying to to say with with their proposal. I think what's interesting, though, is that, yes, the House and the Senate approach is differently. But what we're seeing is that the House's approach only includes compression, whereas the Senate's approach includes compression and raising the homestead exemption, which is something that Dan Patrick has wanted uh, over and over and has pushed for in the past. So for many people, the Senate's version is a compromise bill because it includes what the House wants and what House Speaker Dade Phelan and Governor Abbott really want, which is the compression Mm -hmm. aspect, and and also includes what Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick wants, which is the uh, increase of the homestead exemption to $100,000. The House does not seem to want to go for that homestead exemption, though. What's is it? Does this have to do more with politics or policy? 
I think this has to do with both. Um, but without a doubt, it also has to do with the egos of these two leaders of the Texas legislature, of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and of House Speaker Dade Phelan. Remember, during that last special session, which happened last month, House Speaker Dade Phelan and the House passed a compression bill, which was what Governor Abbott wanted, and adjourned sine die uh, on the first day and left yeah. uh, and left Austin and left the Senate pretty much to decide whether to pass the House version or to keep working for Take nothing it or leave because it. at the end of yeah. the day, yeah, you don't have the House in town. Uh, well, obviously, this hasn't been settled, and it's something that we're going to be talking about more in just a couple of minutes. So you want to stay tuned for that. Sergio Martinez Beltran covers state politics for the Texas Newsroom. Sergio, thanks so much for the update. You're welcome. Three people died and eight more were injured in a shooting that rocked Fort Worth's Lake Como neighborhood over the holiday. Police haven't said who opened fire or why. But Christopher Connolly of KERA reports people in the neighborhood say the senseless violence does not represent their community. Michael Lockhart was just a few blocks away when the shooting started. It was right before midnight, a couple of hours after the annual Como Fest had wrapped up. He was walking to a friend's house, and then he heard the shots. By the time I can turn around and look, you know, everybody's running. I see people running. I see the direction the shots come from because I can see the spark coming from the gun. Lockhart saw a young man and woman fleeing. Then the woman was shot. But she fell, you know, immediately when she was hit, she fell. She'd been hit in the head, but she was still alive. Lockhart went to help, calling 911 as the other man tried to staunch the bleeding. We were scared to move because it was a head injury, so we, all we could do is get 911 on the phone and do what they asked us to do until they can try to get somebody into her. Lockhart and the other man tried to keep her airway open as paramedics tried to get to the area, blocked by all the fleeing people. Eventually, cops in riot gear showed up to carry her to an ambulance. Lockhart learned later that she died at a nearby hospital. That's somebody's baby girl. You know, I have a daughter, so it just kind of hits home that your baby go, out, go to try to enjoy herself with family and friends. And- end up shot over nothing that she did was even involved with just kids with guns. Lockhart is with the group Legacy Lake Como, which mentors young people and helps organize Como Fest. He says it's a safe and family-friendly event started two years ago to counter neighborhood violence. He says shootings are too common in Fort Worth. They don't understand when you pull that trigger, you destroying families, you destroying bloodlines, you you destroying a generation of a family tree. Fort Worth police say they're still trying to figure out what led to the shooting. It happened over a bloody holiday weekend as gun violence killed and injured dozens of people across the country. Fort Worth City Council member Jared Williams represents Como. We have seen that mass shootings can happen anywhere and do happen anywhere. Williams says the city is rolling out a multi-million dollar initiative to curb teen gun violence. But he says state and federal lawmakers need to deliver real solutions. Certainly cities and organizations and neighborhoods can't do it alone. For Como residents, July 3rd has always been about celebration and homecoming, says Leon Reed. He's a lawyer and community activist. This has been a long-standing 40, 50 maybe even longer tradition of of Como Night being July 3rd and everybody hanging out, 
you know, barbecuing on Horn Street. Reed says the shooting shouldn't overshadow the neighborhood's rich history or the work that people are putting in now to build the community up. It's a sad day that that you wake up on the 4th of July and three people lost their lives to gun violence. It's a frustrating day as a Como resident to see our community on the news, knowing all of the efforts that we uh, go through to make our community safe and to increase its longevity for the next generation coming behind us. He says that work includes trying to prevent shootings like this from happening again. I'm Christopher Connolly in Dallas. Wells Dunbar is our social media editor, and he's monitoring what Texans are talking about on this Wednesday. Wells, welcome back. Hi, David. That shooting that claimed three lives and injured eight others in Fort Worth's Lake Como neighborhood making national news, including condemnation from the White House. We're also hearing from our friends and listeners online about the situation on our Facebook page. John Nielsen says he's thinking of the aftermath of the weekend gun violence restricted not only to Fort Worth. Judy Bloomberg Coat asks, should we count the number of days that the flag isn't at half staff, referring to that mass shooting in the Dallas-Fort Worth area? And Tricia Grovenick asks, or rather says, uh, uh, she's wondering when anyone with the, will have the ability, when anyone with the ability to do something will have the courage to curb gun violence with an assault weapons ban, saying enough is enough. Many folks frustrated and angered by this violence on uh, what was supposed to be a lighthearted holiday yesterday, July 4th. Those are some of the comments we're seeing about this story, David. There's many other stories out there as well that folks are chiming in on. I'll be back with more from social media later in the program. You know, in just a few minutes, we're going to be hearing about uh, sentencing for the uh, shooter in the 2019 Walmart mass shooting in El Paso. That's coming up next. There's a whole lot more of the Texas Standard just ahead. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, where courts-appointed volunteers speak up for a child's best interests during their time in foster care. More at becomeacasa.org. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Relatives of victims and survivors of the 2019 Walmart mass shooting in El Paso will be in federal court this week when the gunman is sentenced. While the El Paso district attorney says he'll seek the death penalty when the gunman's tried in state court. In this current federal trial, the gunman faces life in prison for murder and hate crimes. Aaron Montez of KTEP has more. Families of the 23 people killed by the Walmart gunman and survivors of the August 3, 2019 attack will have the opportunity to speak. Jessica Garcia was shot along with her husband, Guillermo Memo Garcia. They were at the entrance of Walmart selling snacks to raise funds for their daughter's soccer team. Garcia also coached the team. He was hospitalized for nearly nine months before dying from his wounds. Families have been waiting nearly four years for justice, says Jessica Garcia. There's something that's broken in the justice system. As somebody that was on the opposite end of what he did, you know, I don't feel like we've been protected. Patrick Crucius drove more than 600 miles from Allen in North Texas to El Paso to carry out the deadliest attack on Latinos in recent history. The now 24-year-old will also have a chance to speak before he is sentenced. I'm Aaron Montes in El Paso. 
Support for coverage of business comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider dedicated to helping businesses work safer, stronger, better. Providing driver safety videos and resources to help protect workers on the road. More at texasmutual.com slash safety. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Well, last week, the Texas legislature entered its third session of the year, and like the previous special session, this one has a very narrow focus, property tax relief. Headed into the regular session, the first of the year, politicians made big promises on how to redistribute the state's roughly $32 billion budget surplus. Now they're split exactly on how they're going to manage the surplus and deal with property tax relief, especially given the governor's priorities on the latter. Uh, joining us now is a senior policy associate with the Tax Policy Center based in D.C. His name is Richard Auksher. Uh Richard, welcome to the Texas Standard. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, David. These have to do more with approaches than results, it seems to me, although these two different approaches do, have, uh, do lead you to slightly different places. Let's begin with the tax relief plan in the Senate being spearheaded by the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. He wants to focus on a homestead exemption. Could you say why? Ah, so property taxes are calculated, you know, in three steps. One is that we assess the value of the home. Yeah. How much do we think it would sell for on the open market? Then we have a taxable value. Typically, places don't tax the entire value of it. They'll reduce it. So, for example, a homestead deduction lowers the taxable value, which means it's also lowering your bill. Listers might also remember when they file their federal income taxes. There's a standard deduction that lowers their taxable income. It works similar to that. Okay. And then at the end, they apply a tax rate. And so in the Senate, the homestead deduction, one thing that makes it different from some of the other proposals, it's only for homeowners. And so a part of this bill will concentrate the tax cut on homeowners who will have a lower taxable value of their home and therefore pay less in property tax. I see. It's not just uh, this uh, uh, break for homestead deductions. There, there apparently are targeted tax breaks for businesses, money for school districts to lower their tax rates, and stricter revenue caps for school districts uh, as well. And this sailed through the Senate Finance Committee and onto the full chamber, unanimous uh, votes apparently. Over on the House side, their approach is something different. We hear it often referred to as tax rate compression. How does the House approach differ from the Senate approach? Yeah, and so as an outsider, I don't overstep, but this does seem like a fancy word for just tax rate cut. And the reason this differs from the Senate's proposal is that they're basically putting all the money they have for this tax cut into that lower rate. So that means homeowners will pay a lower rate and businesses will pay a lower rate. Because again, remember the homestead deduction only goes to homeowners. Mm. Um, And so by plowing all the funds into the rate cut, they're giving bigger benefits to uh, homeowners and businesses. But specifically, they are giving bigger benefits to the people with the most valuable property. This is just the way the math works. The way you figure out the tax is you take the value of the property, multiply it times the rate. The more value you have, the larger you're going to benefit from lowering that rate. And so, yes, someone who owns a $200,000 home will see a benefit from a lower rate. But someone with a $2 million home will see a far larger tax rate benefit. So I want to make sure that I, I'm not um, oversimplifying this, but um, something that the lieutenant governor often says is, look, this isn't going to benefit 
um, homeowners because if you look at the amount of money that will actually come off of you know um, property tax bills, uh, they're going to be better off with the Senate version than with the House version. Of course, there's a whole lot of political spin, and it's hard to know well who's telling the truth mm-hmm. here and and, and you know, how you're parsing those numbers. But for an everyday uh, homeowner in Texas, and I know that's kind of hard to sort of average here, who makes out better? Yeah, you never want to oversimplify, but we also want to be clear. Generally speaking, everyone who owns property would benefit from a rate reduction. But someone who owns a property that is not extremely valuable, again, think like a $200,000, $300,000 home, they would see some benefit, but it would be far less from someone who owned a property worth millions of dollars. A homestead deduction is specifically designed to concentrate relief on homeowners. And so people who own, say, like a $300,000 to $500,000, $600,000 home, they would see a larger tax cut as a share of their income. And again, this is just this is why we have homestead deductions. It's a way to concentrate benefits on homeowners and kind of more specifically like middle income-ish homeowners. So from uh, the standpoint of a sort of a short-term political impact, one would perhaps say that the Senate plan, the one being pushed by Lieutenant Governor uh, Dan Patrick, is going mm-hmm. to be more appealing to those just basically looking at uh, how much uh, is shaved off the, the top of what I owe. Is that right? Yeah, and this gets to something in the Texas debate where I would love to hear more clarity on why we're cutting property taxes. I understand people like tax cuts, but you need to set up your goal because then you can align it with the policy. If the goal is to ensure that we give tax relief to homeowners in Texas, you would want to do something like this. Um, But then I'm sure the governor and his allies would say, no, the goal is actually helping everyone, including businesses, because businesses will not benefit from a homestead deduction. But again, it's why you have to clarify why are we doing this and tying the policy to that goal. I think a lot of people will say, well, one of the reasons that lawmakers are saying we're doing this is because of an historic budget surplus that the state uh, has found itself with. Uh, but does that not answer the questions uh, sufficiently because there's more money in the coffers? I think that is a reason to cut taxes, but it's one you want to be very careful with going forward. Because as you said, this is a one-time surplus. Currently, Texas has a lot more money than it has to spend. And so returning that in a form of tax cut makes a lot of sense. But there's other ways to do this. It could have just been, for example, a one-time tax rebate. Texas could have asked homeowners to write in and then sent them a check. When you are lowering the rate or increasing the homestead deduction, that's a permanent tax change. And so that's going to affect this budget, but also the next and the next. And so this is always hard. But this really becomes about what's going to happen in the future, because at some point, as it always does, there will be a budget crunch. And when that happens, what will legislators do then? Will they increase property taxes? Because that's very unpopular. If they don't, they might say increase sales taxes, which place a larger burden on lower income homes. And so what you've just done is shifted who's paying taxes instead of cutting them. And so you kind of have to be aware that this is also going to affect future budget decisions that might not be as beneficial and rosy. Richard Auksher is with the Tax Policy Center based in D.C. nonpartisan think tank. We're going to have a link to more resources, texasstandard.org. Richard, thanks so much for joining us on The Standard. Oh, thank you, Davis. Pleasure. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Center for Proton Therapy, offering radiation treatment that precisely targets cancer with a focused proton beam just a few millimeters wide. More at texasprotons.com. 
From the Texas Newsroom, I'm Matt Thomas. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says he will not testify at his impeachment trial scheduled to start in September. His decision is in clear defiance to the impeachment rules adopted by the Texas Senate. The Texas Newsroom's Sergio Martinez Beltran reports. Paxton's refusal to testify was announced by Tony Busby, one of Paxton's attorneys. Busby called the 20 articles of impeachment against his client meritless and absurd. And he says Paxton, quote, will not dignify the illegal House action by testifying. On the resolution unanimously adopted by the Texas Senate last month, Paxton is ordered to appear in person to answer the charges of impeachment. That chamber also has the power to compel the attendance of a witness. However, it seems like Paxton's attorneys are ready to fight such effort. Paxton's impeachment trial in the Senate is scheduled to start September 5th. Most of the articles of impeachment are related to Paxton's decision to use his office to intervene in a federal investigation against one of his political donors. I'm Sergio Martinez-Beltran in Austin. Lawmakers in Austin will try again today to come to an agreement on property tax cuts. The Texas Senate, House, and Governor all agree that property taxes should be cut, but they also, so far, have been unable to strike a deal. The Texas Department of Public Safety recovered the bodies of four migrants from the Rio Grande near Eagle Pass over three days since Saturday, including an infant. One person is dead and four others injured after a fireworks explosion in the town of Gilmer in northeast Texas. Police say the fireworks were being prepared for a 4th of July celebration when they accidentally went off. Police say there is no indication of foul play. The state fire marshal and ATF are investigating the cause of the explosion. Demand for whole home power generators is up across the area, especially in the Houston area, after recent unexpected storms knocked out electricity for days in some areas. The generators typically run off natural gas or propane and kick in seconds after the power goes out. Aaron Hallmark owns Gentex Elite Services in Conroe and says the increased interest in the more robust home generators started a few years ago. It's been kind of seasonal for a long time, but, you know, since the ice storm, uh, I think it's kind of been a year-round thing since then. Hallmark says he's seen a more than 30% spike in whole home generator sales over the past month with the string of powerful storms in Houston and in some other areas of the state. The generators are not cheap, though, usually starting at more than $10,000. Matt Thomas from the Texas Newsroom. Support for these Texas headlines comes from UT Health Houston, School of Public Health, offering graduate-level degrees for public health leaders in Texas and beyond. Learn more at go.uth.edu slash be bold. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Most Texans believe that the Battle of San Jacinto settled pretty much everything. Once Mexican President Santa Ana was decisively defeated, he would famously sign a treaty guaranteeing Texas independence, and he would never again set foot on Texas soil, right? Well, commentator W.F. Strong reminds us that's not what actually happened. It comes as a great surprise to many Texans today, as it did to our ancestors as well, that just six years after Santa Ana's Pyrrhic victory at the Alamo, he sent yet another two armies in 1842 to besiege San Antonio. The first did little harm. The second army sacked the city and occupied the Alamo once more. General Adrian Wall attacked San Antonio at dawn on September 11, 1842, the Mexican force of about 1,500 troops 
awakened all the town at once with a heart-stopping boom of a big cannon blast. This was followed by military trumpeters playing reveille. The soldiers marched and the cavalry rode through the streets. They quickly pacified minor resistance on their way to the central plaza. This was the 1800s version of shock and awe. Near the plaza, Texas patriots quickly gathered and put up fierce resistance from houses nearby, shooting through rifle loopholes in the walls. But it was fruitless. They were surrounded by a Mexican force of many hundreds. They waved the white flag to sue for terms. How did such a large army make it all the way to San Antonio without anybody noticing and sounding the alarm? General Wall was actually a French mercenary, and he was quite wily. He brought his army across the Rio Grande, about 20 miles south of Eagle Pass, and then swung north of the most traveled roads, bushwhacking his way through mesquite brush and mots of trees. When the Texans put up the white flag, they asked to return to their homes. Wall told them that if they did not surrender at discretion, they would be exterminated without exception. The Texans discussed options briefly and surrendered without condition, hoping that Wall would be, shall we say, lenient and a man of his word. Wall wrote, so that they might recognize Mexican generosity, I guaranteed them their lives, and the surrender of weapons followed. Wall now had 62 prisoners and high-value prisoners, too. District court was in session, so he had many of San Antonio's finest in custody. Seven lawyers, a district court judge, two physicians, a surgeon, and many prominent business leaders. He told them that they would be returning with him to the border where they would be released. This was a lie. They were taken all the way to the infamous Perote prison east of Mexico City, where many were held for two years, subjected to hard labor during the day and chained in dungeons at night. Wall did not occupy San Antonio long. His goal was to be a disrupting force, preventing Texans from feeling secure and also to inhibit migration from the U.S. given such an unpredictable climate. Santa Ana also wanted to scare off countries like Britain and the U.S. who had interests in annexing Texas. To many observers around the world, Santa Ana was the equivalent of the crazy ex-boyfriend keeping new suitors at bay by his unpredictability. Wall's other objective was to march east of San Antonio to determine if there were credible military buildups for a Texas invasion of Mexico. There was not but it's ironic that his scouting trip resulted in creating a passionate cry across Texas for just that, an army to invade and crush Mexico once and for all. When Wall prepared to take his army to the east, young Texas Ranger Jack Hayes and others sounded the alarm throughout Texas that San Antonio had fallen. Volunteers grabbed their guns and saddled their horses. They rode like the wind and gathered with Colonel Caldwell in Seguin. They pushed on to Salado Creek and made camp. From there, Hayes led his rangers to tempt Wall to pursue them. Wall took the bait, and the Texans, from the cover of the woods, employing their sharpshooters, killed and wounded over 60 Mexican soldiers, while the Texans lost only one. Captain Nicholas Dawson and his 54 men were attacking Wall's rear guard. Wall couldn't risk being surrounded. He sent 500 men to neutralize the threat. Wall, in his journal, focused on the Dawson Massacre, declared victory, and headed back to Mexico. 
Santa Ana had once again underestimated Texan resolve. He wanted to unsettle the new republic with fear and chaos and keep them isolated in the world. Instead, he drove the Texans toward a collective desire to join the United States of America, which they did three years later with 94% of Texans voting to join the Union. I'm W.F. Strong. These are stories from Texas. Some of them are true. W.F. Strong is a professor of culture and communication at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. You can check out more of his stories from Texas in Texas Co-op Power Magazine and wherever fine podcasts are served. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Texas is home to 11 owl species, a few of them you may have heard of or heard before. There's the western screech owl, the barred owl, and of course the great horned owl. While some of these calls may be recognizable, so much about owls has been shrouded in mystery, and perhaps that's why cultures around the world have built up such rich lore and symbolism around these silent hunters. But with new advances in technology, we're learning more about just how complex owls really are, how they hunt, how they communicate, how they think. Science writer Jennifer Ackerman dives into what we know and what we're still trying to figure out about owls in her new book, What an Owl Knows, the new science of the world's most enigmatic birds. The Texas Standards' Laura Rice asked Ackerman about what makes owls so enigmatic. Well, because they are um, so mysterious, so intriguing, and so difficult to study, really they have, um, the scientists face such challenges when they are trying to understand um, and explore these animals. You know, they live, these birds live in very remote locations. Mm. They're, they're active often at night. So they're, they're still very largely mysterious. And we're beginning to, to use some great new technology to solve some of the new mysteries, but uh, it has been very challenging and they are definitely enigmatic. <laughs> That's so interesting. I would, I guess I didn't think necessarily that just like, yeah, it's dark outside when you're trying to trying to watch these these birds is part of the issue so so how has this research changed in the last several years yes so we have um used a, a an array of new technology which is really helping out i mean we have now kind of new eyes in the field like uh infrared cameras to see what's going on with owls mm-hmm. at night uh we have drones to explore those really remote owl habitats. Some owls live, you know, in, in Siberia and in very remote areas. We can use drones to, to investigate those. We have nest cams that, that offer us a kind of 24-7 view of intimate owl interactions at the nest. And then we have um, satellite transmitters, uh, which are we can actually attach to the um, to the backs of some large owls, and those are illuminating the movements of these owls over both short and long distances. So, all that new understanding gleaned from from these new technologies, along with the, the insights from you know researchers who have been doing long term studies of owls for decades, 
are really shedding light on, on, on mysteries that have been around for centuries. This book isn't your first about the avian world. You've published two others, The Genius of Birds and The Bird Way. Besides how mysterious owls are, what made you want to take a closer look at them? Well, I think partly because uh, they're such skilled uh, hunters. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're known as wolves of the sky. Um, I had a little eastern screech owl roosting in behind my house for one spring, and I was just amazed at the <laughs> the, the skill of this little bird. I couldn't, I never saw it come and go from its roosting hole. But in the morning, I would find, you know, the wing of a blue jay or one time the whole body of a morning dove just hanging out of the hole oh. in the box. <laughs> and then the and then the owl would pull, pull it inside and finish off its meal, you know. So I was fascinated by the, the kind of remarkable sensory superpowers they have, their extraordinary hearing mm. and their vision and dim light. You know, that allows them to, to really pinpoint their prey in pitch dark. And then they have this this quiet flight, you know, they have wings and feathers that are just so beautifully adapted um, that their their flight is virtually silent. So I, I'm just, you know, fascinated by the biology and the diversity. There are like 260 species of, of owls, and they, you know, they range in size from the, the huge Blackestin's fish owl, which I once saw in, in Hokkaido, Japan. It's the size of a fire hydrant. Wow. On, oh, yeah. Goodness. All the way down to this little tiny little elf owl, which is this little nugget of a bird about the size of a small pine cone. Oh, my goodness. That was so much fun and so many rabbit holes I want to follow you down here. But let's talk about their ears for a moment because you, you mentioned their hearing. What more are we learning about how they use that to hunt and communicate? Yeah, so um, the... A extraordinary thing about um, owl ears is really that, you know, first of all, people people sometimes think that those little tufts at the top of the heads of owls are are their ears. Mm-hmm. Some species, but they're they're not. Owls just have um, a little hole in the side of their head that's covered with feathers, and that's their actual ear. But it's what is inside those openings that is. Uh, what allows an owl to hear the really faint rustle of its prey, a mouse or a vole. The, the inner ears of owls have been described as the, you know, the race cars, the, the Ferraris of sound wow. sensitivity. And they, owls have in their brains this, these really big cochlea, which are the hearing organs in the brain. And they're just crazy long. And like in a barn owl, they're maybe three or four times as long as the cochlea of most other birds. And that gives owls a a sense of hearing that's just nearly unequaled in the animal world. What is it that you think makes them fascinating? You mentioned, you know, seeing them in Japan across cultures and and generations that they've been really revered in a lot of cases. They have. They've been revered. They, They are the most... A common bird in, as a symbol in, you know, myths and stories. Yeah. They they appear in cultural artifacts, art through the ages. There's some cultures that really revere owls. I think of the the Ainu people of northern Japan mm-hmm. who revere those Blackestons fish owls and really consider them protectors of their villages. The the ancient Greeks were the same way. They thought owls were you know symbols of wisdom and prosperity. But there are other cultures that view owls as, as emblems of evil and, mm. you know, witches and bad omens linked with death. In Belize, for instance, owls are viewed as, as bearers of bad luck. So there's a real range of attitudes. And, and you know, in some places, those negative attitudes towards owls are, are causing problems. Mm. And um, there are great ad- efforts ongoing to, to educate people and, 
and assure them that uh, that you know owls are not are not symbols of death or or omens of death or illness or anything, but just birds. Well, they seem to know something that 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 humans don't know, and they and they've long been equated with with wisdom. Maybe maybe for better or for worse. Can we quantify how intelligent owls actually are? Well, you know that's a, been a bit of a task for any animal, actually, right. other than other, even for ourselves. But um, but we do know that owls have very big brains for their body size, and they have very flexible behavior, which is um, often an indicator indicator of intelligence in the animal world. And also, they they learn throughout their lives. You know, we we at one point we thought that the behavior of owls was just hardwired. You know, it was mm-hmm. genetic, but it turns out they they are learning all the time, and in some very interesting ways. There's a a, um, a species of owls, the long of owl, the long-eared owls in uh, Central Europe, that actually roost together in huge groups. There are like hundreds of owls in in the villages of Serbia, and these. Um, big colonies, they think, are kind of acting as information sharing centers, that the Mm -hmm. owls are actually learning from each other about the good hunting spots and what's dangerous and what's not. So it's, um, it's very interesting new research going on in this area. And it's really, we're really just at the beginning. Jennifer Ackerman is the author of What an Owl Knows out now. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight to talk with you. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that early cancer detection can save lives. Genetic testing can help in understanding cancer risk and provide time for preventive measures. More at TexasOncology.com. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Temperatures across Texas are looking a bit more like normal for the summer as opposed to the sweltering heat wave that's been beating down on us. The past couple of weeks have been a struggle to stay cool for many, not just outside, but inside their homes, too. Sarah Willa Ernst of Houston Public Media spoke with people whose AC units just aren't doing enough. There's a famous quote by Mark Twain. The coldest winter is a summer in San Francisco. I actually heard someone say almost the same exact thing about Houston. The coldest winter I ever spent was summer in Houston. But Stefania Tomaskovic with the community group SEER says it's for very different reasons. The hallmark of a cold Houston summer is the sheer force of AC. From a chilled home to blasting cold air as they drive to work at an over-air-conditioned office. But she says that's not the reality for many low-income Houstonians. And I was sweating like a dog. That's been especially true for 77-year-old Elida Jimenez during the heat wave plaguing Houston. She pulled herself out of bed after midnight. She couldn't sleep because of how hot it got inside of her home in Aldine. I had to get up at 1 in the morning to take a shower because I I was restless. It was too hot. She uses two small window units that make a small dent against the heat. That just turns the the heat around and around and around. She says there are exposed parts of the house she owns that need fixing. And these holes are where warm air enters and cold air escapes. She's retired and doesn't have the money to make repairs. So she has to find ways to live with the heat. It's not cold. It's not cool. It's just warm. And still, wait until this afternoon. When it really is hot, then I can feel it bad. 
She takes cold showers. She avoids cooking anything elaborate and baking, which she loved to do. And she goes to a friend's house who has better AC. Can you imagine? We already got hundreds already. And that's, that's not even July yet or August. And her disbelief is spot on. There hasn't been a heat wave this hot and this long and this early in Houston history. The National Weather Service reports it was the longest stretch of back-to-back 100-degree -back days in June. For Carol Smith and Fifth Ward, this heat wave has been torture. It's hell. <laughs> it's very hot. Smith's electricity bill is around $150 a month. And the money she's spending isn't even keeping her cool. So basically, whatever the temperature is outside, it's the same temperature in my house. That's in winter and in the summer. Smith is also struggling with home weatherization. The 100-year-old house she's renting has poor insulation, as well as cracks in the floor, walls, and ceiling. The thermometer often reads 85 degrees inside the house, she says. Even with the window units, you have to like sit directly in front of it because the ceilings are very, very high. So it's like if I'm sitting down in front of the unit, I'm cool. But if I stand up, well, all around me is hot air. She sometimes sits in her car and blasts the AC to get some no, relief. But then so she has to go back inside, into her hot house. Especially when I'm doing my work on the computer, it's hard to like mentally cope like a normal person would. Yeah, have to have a, the air conditioning and a fan and another little fan and another little fan and, and then a cup of ice water just to keep me cool so I can just sit there and like concentrate. I'm Sarah Willa Ernst. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar joins us once again with a look at what Texans are talking about online. Wells, welcome back. Hey, David. Good to be back with you. Well, I don't know about you, but I can definitely empathize with this comment from a listener on Facebook. Cello Arredondo says, after being off for a few days, I'm walking into work like this. What is this place? <laughs> sure, I'm not the only one. And hey, I was here on Monday, so come on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that funny, funny with the holidays falling on a Tuesday. Uh, it could mean uh, quite an extended break for those fortunate enough to enjoy it. Uh, like William Hunter, another listener of ours, also chiming in on Facebook, who says, after taking the holiday off, it's back to the shop today. He says he's hoping there will be enough customers to keep us from looking at the news too hard. Indeed, lots of news out there, and depending on your opinions, about it could have you feeling a type of way. Uh, one news item that we heard about uh, there about midway through the show in the roundup, uh, some fascinating developments there in the uh, impeachment trial of a one Attorney General Ken Paxton. Mm -hmm. Kind of hard to ignore the timing here. I believe what this came out on uh, on uh, Monday, July 3rd, just before the holiday. Uh, I believe in the evening statement from Paxton's attorney that he would not be participating uh, and would not be um, uh, present uh, and available for questioning in his uh, uh, trial for uh, over impeachment in the Texas Senate, the House having impeached Paxton in the Senate uh, there uh, to vote on whether or not to remove him from office. So very interesting developments there on that front. And you best believe lots of folks chiming in on this one. Uh, also via fa Facebook, Aaron Snyler says the attorney general should just be held in contempt of court and put in jail like any other defendant would be. 
Meanwhile, the AG, of course, with his backers, also on Facebook, Joe Torres uh, says he is a stand-up guy and good for Texas, uh, applauding the Attorney General's move there. Another interesting uh, wrinkle in all this here, I see a tweet here uh, from Pat Bryan going on some little secondhand information here, but he cites uh, an interesting... um, uh, some interesting tea leaf reading here from uh, Texas House Representative Gene Wu. Uh, he notes that uh, Wu pointed out on Twitter that Paxton's refusal to testify at his own impeachment will deter his testimony from being used at any criminal trial. Of course, it is important to remember that, yes, this is not the only uh, bit of legal trouble dangling over the AG's head. Of course, there's that long-running, what, eight-year-old uh, indictment for securities fraud uh, that is still set to go to trial at some point in time, and additional to uh, other uh, potential federal investigations. So uh, could be a legal strategy at work here remains to be seen, but uh, definitely, I don't know if this is really going to endear him uh, to uh, those folks in the Senate, David. Another open question on what this move means means yes indeed you know i'm seeing a a strange story coming out of uh, washington new york Mm -hmm. times and others covering it secret service wondering how a white powdery substance which is now being confirmed as cocaine uh, wound up in the white house on sunday evening apparently president biden and his family were away when it was discovered Mm -hmm. uh they were at camp david apparently but it prompted a brief shutdown of some of the white house campus uh, apparently it's been uh, confirmed to be cocaine. Odd, <laughs> that is, uh, odd thing. You know, yeah, and I saw that at first from some, uh, you know, sort of strange media outlets. But yes, uh, of, uh, confirmed now by ABC News and uh, several other outlets there, uh, this news about that strange finding in the White House. So definitely more to come on that measure, I would think, as well. Yeah. You know, just, um, and of course, um, that's um, um, one item. Uh, one item on folks' minds here, you know, and I'm seeing just so many more comments about the heat out there, David. It has cooled <laughs> off in a couple days, but oh man, yeah, it's going to be a long a lot summer. I'm struggling. Feeling, I'm thinking here, David. Yeah, we're out of time for today's broadcast, but you can keep up with the news 24/7 at TexasStandard.org. Wells Dunbar continues to monitor the talk of Texas. Our producers and reporters include Sarah Ash, Shelley Brisbane, Kristen Cabrera, Alexandra Hart, Michael Marks, Gloria Martinez, and Sean Saldana. Roe Alonzo is our digital. Producer. Producer. We'll be back here tomorrow, and we hope you'll join us. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas. Families can save for tuition, room and board, books, and other qualified education expenses at eligible schools nationwide. Learn more at TexasCollegeSavings.com. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killen, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. You've been listening to the Texas Standard. Texas Standard and KUT Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find a lot more great content and shows like the Texas Standard in the NPR Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Do brain games really make me smarter? What is all this screen time doing to my brain? How do I protect my brain as I age? Find the answers to life's most and least pressing questions about your mind with the Two Guys on Your Head podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts.